want to uh, take the opportunity to talk a little bit about the series and say just a little bit about what we're trying to do. I think you probably know that, but it's useful to reiterate the, um, the faculty uh, dinner seminars, I think, have been going on, I don't know how many years, but I've been to them over the past uh, at least decade or so. And the uh, object, of course, is to try to integrate and bring uh, faculty. And this time I invited graduate students. Is there a few graduate students? Yeah, there we are. Okay. To join together and give us a chance to talk about things and to dialogue with one another and get to know one another as well as realize the immense value and the excellence that actually represents the scholarship and the research and learning that goes on around the Mershon Center and the Ohio State University's various many departments that we're affiliated with. Um, I think uh, we sometimes, I think I, I came to Ohio State in 1986. Um, in that era, we, had, we were just getting rid of the high school admission thing and there was kind of a culture that's still around which is sort of like this is really not really a serious but it is and and I think we all actually know that but we don't often celebrate it so in a way this is sort of a way to celebrate that and to recognize some of the excellence um, so anyway and hopefully maybe we'll you know if it's dialogue out of this discussion this evening we'll see. Um, Tonight's dinner seminar, I've invited uh, Kevin Boyle, Humanities Distinguished Professor of History. Um, he's gonna talk about an intriguing topic, um, a group of terrorists. Uh, <laughs> 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 Maybe they're happy, I guess they're happy. <laughs> well, they, they had their days. <laughs> they have good days, okay, yeah. Uh, the Splendid Dead, I like the title, The Splendid Dead, The Intimacy of Terror in Early 20th Century America. Um, some of them might be living next door to you. <laughs> anyway, Kevin teaches 20th century were. American history. He focuses on class. They would be very politics. old. Um, <laughs> just as a sort of note, I, and I didn't even know this until um, this evening, um, Kyle Fleming dug up uh, some of his background. He received Ohio State's Distinguished Alumni Teaching Award, which is not easy to receive. Uh, certainly, I'm not going to get it, but anyway, the <laughs> University Lecture Award, um, his book, uh, Arc of Justice, A Song of Race, Civil Rights, and Murder in the Jazz Age, won the National Book Award for nonfiction, um, the Chicago Tribune Heartland Prize, it was a finalist for the Pulitzer, and, it, and the National Book Critics Circle <coughs> Award. Uh, yeah, that's very impressive. Um, his articles have appeared all over the place, Diplomatic History, Journal of American Labor, Labor History. That's actually a journal that as a graduate student I read quite a bit. <laughs> uh, for a short while, and then I decided I wasn't gonna do a dissertation on this. But anyway, the Michigan Historical Review and various anthologies. Um, and he's published widely. He ends up contributing to you know, general media outlets, you know, Chicago Tribune, the Free Press, et cetera, uh, New York Times, et cetera. Um, a kind of note that he may not, I don't know, you probably post this on your website. Uh, he did his bachelor's degree at the University of Detroit and his PhD at the University of Michigan, so he sort of moved around in different academic circles early in his livelihood as an academician. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, please join me in recognizing uh, our colleague, uh, Kevin Boyle.
Um, let me just do two quick things before I get started. First of all, let me ask if any of you um, speak Italian. I'm really sorry for what I'm about to do to the language. Um, and second of all, let me just say thank you to Craig for the invitation to come and to Kyle for all the work he put into actually um, making all the arrangements and telling me what to do. I really appreciate that very much. Thank you. And also, thanks to all of you for coming out this evening. I really do appreciate it. And I'm really anxious to get feedback on what I'm going to talk about, and which is the current project I'm working at. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what people have to say about it. It occurred to me that because I don't come to Mershon events all that often, um, I always wanted to, but somehow my good intentions never seem to actually work out. That I don't know a lot of you. I know some of you, obviously, but I don't know a lot of you. And I thought it might really be useful if I could give you um, a sense of the kind of work I do, just to give you an idea of how this fits into kind of my um, academic trajectory. And that's always a kind of tricky business. There's something really tricky about trying to categorize academics. And there's something really painful, actually, about trying to categorize yourself. Because what I always assumed, quite frankly, is that I was a Renaissance man. And it turns out I'm not. <laughs> so what I've figured out is that if I have to categorize myself in some way or another, I'm an historian of 20th century American social movements. First book I did was a book on the labor movement. The second book I did was a book on the civil rights movement. And the current project I'm working on, as Craig mentioned, is about a very small political, um, extremist political movement that I think you could fairly call a terrorist movement. Now, my ideas of how to study social movements have shifted and changed over the years. I like to think they've gotten better, but I can't guarantee that. Over the works that I've done, the kind of guiding philosophy is that I've come to see my own work as having three pieces. That I try to approach social movement, American social movements, come down to three combined directions. Two of them are painfully obvious. I like to not simply look at the social movement itself, but rather the relationship between a social movement and the social, the economic, the political structures that that movement tries to change. So the last book I did, which I don't want to talk about except for just a second, really began with my looking at social structure. That's what drew me to the project. I was interested in exploring the most enduring form of racial segregation in the United States, which is the segregation of American cities, the drawing of a color line in American cities that divides neighborhoods, black and white, separate and unequal. That's what I wanted to do with my last book. And what I did is I went in search of a story that would allow me to get into the exploration of those social structures. And it was an event in 1925, Detroit. That's what the last book was. This project that I want to talk about tonight started on the other side of the equation. That what I was trying to do was to get myself as deeply as I could into a particular social movement, as marginal a social movement as I could in early 20th century America. This was an extremist political movement that at its height had probably 
I don't know how many exactly, but probably somewhere around 500 members in the United States. All of them Italian immigrants. The vast majority of those people, working class people. People living on the margins of American society. People who envisioned an alternative view of modernity. They were very, very proud, in fact, to think of themselves as modern men and women but who rejected the forms that modernity had taken in the capitalist world, wanted to destroy those forms, and thought that the best way to destroy those forms was with extreme violence. That's the group I wanted to burrow my way into, and that's what I want to describe for you today. The central figure in that group, if it had one, is Luigi Galliani. Luigi Galliani was born as a Piedmontese by birth. He was born just outside of Turin. He came from, I suppose, what you would call kind of a solidly middle class, if not kind of upper middle class family. He went to the university in Turin, where he trained, by the way, the other kind of famous graduate of the University of Turin was this arch-conservative by the name of Antonio Gramsci. <laughs> he trained as a lawyer. He never practiced law. Instead, in the 1880s, he became very active in the Italian anarchist movement, which was really at that point at its peak of, well, influence is the wrong word, um, activism in Italy. And he became one of its leading propagandists. He was known for his incredible power on the stump, which not surprisingly got him arrested. He was arrested in the middle, mid-1890s spent about five years in prison, and then escaped from prison in 1900, taking with him, by the way, the jailer's wife. <laughs> then passed his way through radical networks until he came to the United States in 1901, where he settled in Patterson, New Jersey. One person thinks Patterson, New Jersey is good news. <laughs> you're, you're, not, you're not in passed through Patterson, did you? I, I, I grew up in Patterson. See, and you're not there now because that's Patterson. <laughs> I'm from Detroit. I can make those jokes. <laughs> he stayed in the United States until 1919 when he was deported. And in his 18 years in the United States, his primary role was as the editor of an anarchist newspaper, the Cronica Seversiva. Well, it became that. A weekly anarchist newspaper that he was the editor of. And in his spare time, when he wasn't editing the newspaper, he traveled around through working class Italian neighborhoods in the United States, preaching the most extreme form of individual anarchism. What Galliani preached was that the major institutions of the industrial world, capitalism, the state, religion, were inherently exploitative, that they had to be destroyed. The key, of course, to his version of anarchism was that he also opposed mass organization of the working class. He was opposed to unionization, which is to say he was not a syndicalist. He was opposed, of course, to party politics. He believed that the way to destroy the systems of oppression and to create this new modern world that he preached was through individual acts of violence that by their extremism would expose the weaknesses of the state, of the capitalist order, of the church, 
and that might, through their accumulative power, shake the working class, the masses, out of the stupor that anarchists believe them to be in. One of the key to understanding this brand of anarchism is that they really had very little time for working people themselves. In other words, what they believed in was what anarchists call, in a phrase that I just love, the propaganda of the deed. That's what Galliani preached. And his followers, the people that um, clustered around him, didn't take that as simply an idea, a point of discussion. They acted on that. So the Gallianisti were responsible, in fact, for four of the worst terrorist outrages of the early 20th century. The July 1916 Los Angeles bombing that killed 10 people in the midst of a preparedness parade. If any of you know your obscure American history, this is the famous Tom Mooney bombing, um, who was not a Gallianisti, but then again, he didn't commit this atrocity either. The November 1917 Milwaukee bombing that killed 11 policemen, bomb went off in a Milwaukee police station, one of the worst losses of life for a policeman um, until September 11th. The June 1919 bombing in seven separate cities, the main target of that and the one that of course caused the most um, drama was the bomb that went off that attempted to kill the Attorney General of the United States, A. Mitchell Palmer. This was, in fact, the act that really triggered the Great Red Scare of 1919-1920. They tried to kill Palmer, his wife, and his nine-year-old daughter in their home and came really within inches of doing so. And then the September 1920 Wall Street bombing, one of the most famous terrorist acts of the era, that killed 38 people. All of these were Gallianisti attacks. And that's the movement I wanted to burrow my way into. Now, it is not as if historians have never noticed the Gallianisti before. There is an earlier literature on um, American anarchism, and the best work is done by really the, the preeminent historian of American anarchism, Paul Average. And then there's been more recently, for really understandable reasons, a series of books that have discussed in some way or another the Gallianisti. The best of those was a book came out about a, two years ago now. Beverly Gage wrote a really terrific book on the Wall Street bombing. What those books do, though, is they deal with the Gallianisti in their ideological formation. They deal with the sets of ideas that these people embraced, and that's fine. Because these were this was an ideological movement. I'm not trying to minimize that. But it was other things as well. And it's those other things that I want to talk about a little bit today. First, a word about organization. If you look at the FBI files, and that's the best files at least that are available to us about the Gallianisti, because we don't have kind of local police files to draw on. What they will do in the FBI files is they'll treat the Gallianisti as um, a very hierarchical organization. Luigi Galliani told them what to do, and they went out and did it, which would, of course, not really make them anarchists. That's not the way it operated. And one of the things that the Mershon did for me is help support research in the Italian records. And they have a much better sense in the Italian records of how the Gallianisti actually worked. The way the Gallianisti actually worked is that they formed <coughs> geographically specific organizations, what they like to call, most of the time they called them study circles, which is really what they were most of the time. And so there was one in Patterson, and there was one in um, Youngstown, 
and there was one in the Western Pennsylvania Mining District. And what these organizations then did is they operated completely autonomously because they were anarchists. And what, in the course of his 18 years, what Galliani did is he would attach himself to specific numbers of those. And he did really three. The first one in Patterson, among the silk workers of Patterson. The second one in Bari, Vermont, which was Carrara marble workers, transplants. And the third one, which is what we have up here, in the greater Boston area. And that's the kind of critical one that I want to talk about. And what I've done is I've identified the one of those four outrages I gave you, we only can say with absolute precision who was responsible for one of those four. And that was the bombing at A. Mitchell Palmer's house in 1919. And we know that because the reason they didn't kill A. Mitchell Palmer was because the bomber dropped the suitcase full of dynamite on the front porch before he got away. And it blew up in his face. And so the blast went outward instead of inward and we know who that was. And his name was Carlo Valdinocci. He was 24 years old. And what I've done here is I've put him at the center of the circle, right there. And then what happened with money that Mershon helped to support is I have drawn, built out from that, a map of the cell in Boston. And most of this is that. It's this blue group running down to about there. And what I've been able to do is then build out the networks, the ties that link them together. And one of them is really about geography. Everybody up here who's in this light blue, they all come from one place in Italy. They come from Romagna. Now that's not surprising because Romagna, which is kind of this stretch up here in the north of Italy was an area that from the turn of the century onward was racked by political conflict. 1907, Romagna was, um, summer of 1907 was all but shut down with a farm laborers strike. 1911, the city of, the town really, of Forli had a revolution that required the Italian government to send the troops up to crush it. They declared themselves an independent state, communist state. 1913, 1914, almost the entire year was taken up by an entire region-wide revolution that culminated in the summer of 1914 in what the Italians call the Red Week of 1914. Another violent, massive upheaval that had to be crushed by the power of the Italian state. And this network all come from Romagna. And in fact, they come from a cluster of towns that kind of circle around Bologna. There's the, the most famous anarchist to come out of Romagna was a guy you may have heard of. His name was Benito Mussolini, who was from Bologna and started his career not as a fascist but as an anarchist. All of the revolution that ran through Romagna in the early 20th century was guided by the anarchist movement. And that's where all of these people come from. And that's one set of connections that makes them a coherent group. But in my mind, it's not the really cool one. The really cool one, that's an official academic term, I think, is um, the lines that come outward. And let me show you just a tiny bit of those. 
start with Carlo Valdinacci here in the center, again, the bomber who blows himself up in 1919. When he came to the United States, he came in 1913. Wow, right in the heart of that kind of revolutionary moment. He came with Domenico Ricci and Antonio Bianchi. They came together. You can find them on the ship together. They, uh, they come from the same town. They came together, and they all then moved in with Carlo's brother, Ercole Valdinacci, who had come the year before and settled in Boston. So they all move together, and they move in with his brother. By this time, his brother is working for Carlo Zamagni, and they're all working in the building trade. Carlo trained as a carpenter. He's 19 years old. He had trained as a carpenter. They are working alongside Niccolò Recci, whose brother, by the way, I didn't put him on the chart because I was getting kind of confused myself at that point. Niccolò Recci's brother had come to the United States with Ercole, and they were all working together in the trade. Now, it's an oddity in some ways that Niccolo here was working in the building trade because there was one kind of particular physical attribute that was a bit of a problem for him in the building trade, which is several fingers of his hand were missing. And they were missing because his avocation was he was this circle's bomb maker. In other words, what this network operated on was certainly origin, the power of land. But what it also operated on were these incredibly intimate web of connections, of family, of neighbors, of blood. Now, the question is, why does this matter? Well, it's my question anyway. <laughs> And I think it matters because, as I said a couple of minutes ago, I think of my work on social movements of having three pieces, and I gave you two of them. This is the third. That what historians generally do is they look at social movements or other subjects generally through the lens of large structures, sociological structures, political structures, economic structures. That's what we do. And I have no problem with that. Obviously, I'm doing that too. But what I've really come to believe is that we also need to understand the power of the personal. And that's what historians don't do very well. That in our own lives, we understand perfectly that our lives are shaped by large forces, but we also understand that they are shaped by the pull of family, by the power of our personal connections, by love. And what I want to do is I want to bring that level of analysis into the study of social movements. That what I want to do, and what I like to think maybe sets what I'm trying to do apart from what other historians do, is to say, how do we bring that intimacy that we know is so fundamental to human life into our historical analysis? And that's what this is, is an attempt to do. Now, this is a sense of history that is informed by a really brilliant article that's getting, getting old now, but what the heck, so am I, um, that was published in the 1990s by Robin Kelly, great historian of African-American history, on arguing for the study of infrapolitics, the personal and the political. And it's influenced quite straightforwardly, actually, by James Scott and the Weapons of the Week. It's a brilliant article. It has one great weakness in it, that what it tends to do is it tends to valorize activism. 
And so what I want to do kind of intellectually is to take the power of that argument and to fuse it together with what I think is some of the greatest work done in American history, which is the great micro-histories of the colonial American period. And the greatest of those is the brilliant work by Laurel Thatcher Ulrich on Martha Ballard, which is about as far removed as you can get from this sort of study, that what she does is she looks in intimate detail in the life of a um, midwife working on the colonial frontier. And what it does is it deals with the beautiful intimacy of human experience. And what I wanted to try to do is to fuse together the political in a very intimate way and that personal and to bring it into the study of social movements. That's what I want to do. It's what I tried to do with my previous book. It's what I'm trying to do with this one. I don't want to go on too long, but I want to give you one example of how this is actually operating on the ground in this book I'm working on. So let me start at the end. I want to start there. On August 22nd, 1927, in this beautiful place, which I'm pretty sure is Dulles Hall. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pay for that. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> this is the Charlestown State Prison in um, Charlestown, Massachusetts. In other words, in Boston, Massachusetts. And it was, in August 1927, the site of um, the most famous of Galeonisti actions. The execution of Niccolo Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti. And that's where they start this project. This is where the book starts on that day of August 22nd, 1927. I'm not going to give you the great in-depth explanation of that because you probably would like to go home at some point this evening. So I'll give you the quick take. The center of the book is the most famous of all Gallianisti, Bartolomeo Vanzetti. And what the first maybe, I don't know, third of the book, maybe a little more than that, attempts to do is to explain how Bartolomeo Vanzetti, how this man became a Gallianisti. What is it that drew him into the most radical of political circles? And I'm going to do this really quickly for you because you don't want me to go into great depth. But what makes him unusual is that he is not, in fact, from Romagna at all. He is from Piedmonte. He is from a tiny little town um, considerably south of Turin. It's actually a little closer to Genoa, Villa Filetto. He does not come from a radical family. In fact, he grew up in a conservative Catholic family in this tiny little town. His father, well, he always said his father was a farmer. And he was. He owned his own property. But really what his father was was a shopkeeper. He owned a little shop in the middle of Villa Filetto, which I was going to show you because I have a picture of it. But my wife's in the picture, and she doesn't like me to show it. <laughs> um, so his path to radicalism has to be understood in the context when it emerges from. And it has to be understood, and I'm happy to elaborate on this if anyone wants more detail. That was a hint. That really in response not to family tradition, but to the exact opposite an explicit rejection of his father, and an embrace of exactly the opposite. Coming out of, I would argue, a deep frustration of an ambitious young man who had his ambition thwarted. His first venture into radicalism comes in a very tentative way when he was still a teenager, when he went up to Turin to practice his trade, um, which was candy making, pastry chef. 
big thing in Piedmonte, and then um, was drawn very tentatively into the socialist circles that were kind of active in that part uh, in Turin at that point. His first major act of rebellion was 1908, an act not only of rebellion really, but quite explicitly of cruelty, when he left his family and moved to the United States. And he did what immigrants always do, or often did, which was to follow a family connection. He came to the United States and lived with his cousin in a little portion of New York City called the Tenderloin. His cousin got him his first job in a uh, fancy men's club, a yacht club, uptown. Yeah, I know, it's such a great thought. Bartolomeo Vanzetti, the anarchist, working in the men's club uptown. Um, and then for a whole variety of reasons, in 1909, so a year after he arrived, he went out on his own. He went up to New England and for the next number of years traveled around New England as an itinerant worker. He couldn't find decent work anywhere. And it was somewhere in that process that he encountered the Gallianisti. I can't say for sure where it was. I have a very good guess, though, so I'm going to tell you that with authority because it comes down here. 1910, as part of this movement around, he spent two years, 1910, 1911, living in Meriden, Connecticut. It turns out that there was a group of, it's right here, a group of Gallianisti in Meriden and in the next town north of Meriden, which is New Britain, Connecticut. And my guess is from his letters and from the connections that I know he had, that it's there that he connected up with this group. It was a moment of profound loneliness he writes home and he says, can't believe the low lives I'm forced to live among, by which he meant, by the way, Southern Italians. <laughs> he said that he can't find decent people to spend his time with. I think he found them here. And it was a network that connects through those lines of family straight up to the Boston group. Now, I'm not absolutely sure of this. I am sure that the connection becomes very, very firm in late 1913, early 1914, when Bartolomeo Vanzetti finally finds a place to live. He moves in with the Brini family in Plymouth, Massachusetts. That will become his home until he's arrested, except for a brief period when he flees to Mexico to avoid the draft in 1917. And what the important connection here is, he comes here already a Gallianisti. He moves in with the Brini family and he goes to work in the biggest employer in Plymouth, which is the Plymouth Cordage Works. That itself is a political act. There was a group of Gallianisti inside the Cordage Works who were trying to foment revolution and he joined them. There's a big strike in 1916 that he and his fellow Gallianisti try to kind of destroy actually because it's an IWW strike, which is to say they were syndicalists and not individual anarchists. What's critically important, and if any of you happen to be immigrants, you will know exactly, or I suspect you will know exactly what I'm talking about. What's particularly far important is what he found in the Brini family was what so many immigrants do when they come to a new country. He found fictive kin. He found in the Brinis his family. And he's very explicit about that. He says on trial, he says, the Brini's family, no family better to meet than them. And what makes them important is that the Brinis are from Romagna with direct connections straight up to this circle. It's through the Brinis, through the power of family, that Bartolomeo Vanzetti gets integrated into this anarchist circle. And it is because of that connection that he is arrested. He and Nick Sacco are arrested in May of 1920. 
and if anyone is interested how they were arrested, the connections that get them arrested are up on that chart too. Hint number two. They are tried for first degree murder for a double homicide they did not commit. They are convicted in July of 1921. They are sentenced to death. And for the next six years, there is a series of appeals that at the same time create an international cause celeb to turn these two extraordinarily radical men into the American version of the Dreyfus Affair. Their um, final appeal fails, their final legal appeal fails on August 19, 1927. They are sent immediately to the death house in the prison. There are only um, three cells in the death house, in case anybody is interested. And for the next three days, they stay there until their execution shortly after midnight on August 23, 1927. And I start there, on that last day. And the critical event of that last day absolutely fascinates me. A whole series of visitors came in to see Vanzetti on that last day. Prison chaplain, the Catholic chaplain, came in three different times. I like the symbolism of that. Denied three times. Because they wanted him to make his last confession to, extreme, to receive extreme unction. Of course, he had rejected the Catholic Church long before, and he turns the priest away three separate times. The warden comes down any number of times because the warden knew he was innocent or believed him to be innocent and didn't want to execute him. And so it seemed to somehow make him feel better to stop by. The prison physician comes down to make sure that he and Nick Sacco and a third person who was executed at the same time are healthy enough to die. But the key visitor and the one that fascinates me is his sister. The defense committee pulled off a great publicity coup. They brought Vanzetti's younger sister, Luigina, two years younger than him, to Boston so that she would be there for his execution. He hadn't seen her in 19 years. And they brought her in on the ship arrives in New York Harbor on August 19th, the very day the last appeal fails. Hundreds of people come down to the dock to see her. News cameras are there, a welcoming party, hundreds of supporters. They bring her up to Boston so she can say goodbye. It's, it's a classic bit of publicity. Vanzetti's thrilled by this until he discovers that what she's really done is she's come all this way to bring him back to the church. She comes, thin, 37-year-old woman with a Madonna medal around her neck to plead with him to come back to the church, save his soul. First day she comes is Saturday, August 20th, and in the death row you're not allowed to actually touch the prisoners. There's a chalk line on the ground and she has to stand six feet back from his cell. But that warden couldn't bring himself to make her do it. And so when she arrived the first day, they opened the cell door. And he came out into the hallway, and they hugged. And they sat there for an hour talking. First time they talked 19 years. She couldn't, in the end, bring herself to say anything about the church. She couldn't do it. She came back again on Sunday, the day before execution day. Another hour with him. This time she had to stay at the chalk line. And then on the last day, she came twice. She came at 11 o'clock in the morning to say goodbye. Spent an hour with him. Came back at 3 to say goodbye again. And then at 6 o'clock, his lawyer came to see him. His lawyer, had to, who was a very conservative man, came in to say to him at the end, you got to tell me, I spent my life, last four years of my life defending you. Did you do it? And, Sacos, and Vanzetti said no. And he said, will you renounce? The lawyer said, would you renounce violence? 
now in this last moment, tell your supporters no violence when I'm dead? And Vanzetti said, no. He said, the only way you destroy a social system is with violence. And then when the lawyer was leaving, and he wrote all this down, which is wonderful. When the lawyer was leaving, Vanzetti said, can you get my sister to come one more time? And so at 7.30 at night, he's executed at midnight, 7.30 at night, she came back. Prison's completely shut off. There are 800 policemen guarding that prison. There are machine gun nests up on the highest points. The air has been closed down in case a plane is going to attack. She comes into the prison. She spends five minutes with them. He's not allowed out of his cell. And because you're not allowed to touch the prisoners, not only are there bars on the prison gate, but they've put mesh between the bars. So you can't physically reach into the cell. And at the end, she walks up and she puts her palm up like this on the mesh. And he puts his palm up next to her. And they say goodbye. And then he hands her a letter to take home to the father who he'd abandoned 19 years before. And what it says? It says, Sorella carissima, io sono innocente. And that's what I love to do in history. Because what you've got in that very moment is you've got the power of a social structure. You've got the power of the state. You've got the power of capital right there. What bigger power is there than to execute somebody? And what you also have is the power of a movement. At the very end, he is a true believer to the end. He's going to die in three hours, and he's saying, I will not renounce violence. But what you really got is the incredible intimacy of that moment. What you have is a brother reaching out to touch his sister's hand. You got flesh on flesh. What you got is that letter which if you think about it is an absolute assurance. That's the greatest gift of them all. He is sending home a letter to his father, absolutely assuring them that he's innocent. In the end, it isn't those big structures that matter most, though they matter. It's the intimacy of that moment. And that's what I want to do with my history. What I want to do is to do for people in the past, inside those social movements, to give you a sense of the way we know life works, but that as historians we often overlook. The big, issues, the big structures, absolutely, those small ones too. And I think when you do that, when you get down to that level of analysis of a social movement, social movements change. Because then what you see is the enormous potential, the promise of a social movement, the enormous cost of a social movement. And that's what I do. I am all yours. Thank you. Please. So we can talk about the scenery. I mean, how four That's right. There are others. They, Um, that is, uh, yes, that would be my answer, actually. That they believed that the structures of the state could be shaken to the core, that you would expose the weaknesses of the structure of the state and serve as a kind of inspiration to the masses. It is, well, it is and it isn't delusional, because it is delusional in that 
those four outrages accomplished nothing but, in fact, destroying the Galeganisti. In some ways literally, and in some ways politically. The Galeganisti as a movement in the United States is destroyed. But if you think about, though this is not an anarchist example, what is the great propaganda of the deed event of this period? Is the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. What does it do? It shakes the world to its core. Well, sure, but that's fine with the anarchists. They're not, they're not worrying about that much. So I agree that as a social theory, as a political theory, this is about as, that's the wrong phrase. I was about to say it's a dead end. That seems like the wrong phrase to use. Um, is it deep? No. Is it likely to have accomplished anything? No. But it is premised, uh, but there is, you know, there is an example you can point to that is probably one of the great transformative, it is one of the great transformative moments in the modern world. It's not an anarchist act, however. So I would like to make clear, I should make clear, that one of the things that I find a real weakness of the literature on anarchism, at least the historical literature on anarchism, is the romanticism that comes with it. I'm not doing that. I want people to see the cost of this sort of thing. That's really critical to my perspective on this. So, yeah? Whoops. It resonates with some of the questions of how you, uh, of your archival evidence. Mm -hmm. While they're pursuing an anarchist agenda, they're writing lovingly home in their loneliness. Mm -hmm. And uh, even after having left their family and inmates yep. behind, I guess I would have expected anarchists to repudiate family a little more vociferously yeah. and con consistently than that. Yeah. And had they done that, you would not have letters home. That's right. That's a wonderful question. That's a wonderful question. And I, the, my answer, I think, is going to kind of swing in exactly the opposite direction. They don't resolve those contradictions. Human beings embrace. Do they even recognize them? Or? Uh, it depends on the person. Sacco, um, who I haven't talked about here, um, Sacco was very happily and proudly married for the entire time that he was engaged, and he loved, loved his children. He had two children who lived. He had lost two more. And his greatest, it drives, literally drives him insane, is that he has been arrested for something he didn't do and he can't be with his children. Other, Vanzetti never marries, and, it's a, and that is a very explicit decision. He writes home and says, I will, literally, says, I will never marry, because he weds himself to the movement. Um, he does try desperately to seduce any number of women, which is actually one of the fun parts. He has a group of women who will come to visit him in prison, and he's writing them secret love letters from prison. Um, ah, I love, will you come see me again? Um, it's wonderful stuff, actually. But they don't reconcile it. Luigi Galliani lives outside of Boston for this period, at least. He moves around, but he lives outside of Boston with his wife and five children while he's traveling around the country talking about the destruction <coughs> of the social structure. And that's the beauty of it to me, is that people hold contradictory ideas. And I think we just, as historians, what we often do is we want to kind of neaten them up. Mm -mm. I love embracing the contradictions of the human psyche. Yeah, I, I guess kind of a follow-up, but it just takes me to something you, I thought, said at the beginning that I don't really understand. Um, you said they operated, in, talking about Galliani, mm -hmm. as a study of they operated independently because they were anarchists. <laughs> um, yeah, I was a little facetious, maybe. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me, given what you said. <laughs> Uh, but let me follow up a little more. Um, so I don't know what Galliani's role in any of this is. Mm -hmm. 
That's um, right. Yeah, that's a great question, actually. What I, let me kind of tackle it bit by bit. The first piece is where I have put Galliani over here. The first time I drew this chart up, I put him in the center. And I suddenly realized that that really alters what I think is the reality. What Galliani would do is he would serve, what, let me put it this way. Vanzetti, he writes about Galliani in private letters. And what he says is, Galliani is our maestro. He's our teacher. And so what he does is he operates as a propagandist. He publishes this newspaper every week for almost the entire time he's here until it's suppressed in 1717-18. And what he does is he lays out the theory of anarchism, as he understands his version of anarchism. He talks about how we need to have direct action. He'll meet with these groups. He'll meet with Val he, Nicolo Recchi up there. Um, they actually lived in the same house for a little while. So it's not like he's completely separate from them. But what he serves as is the inspiration. He serves as the intellectual framer for their activism. But what he cannot, what he does not do, and what I really meant by, you know, they're, because they're anarchists, it, it admittedly was kind of a throwaway line, um, is that they, they're not operating on a command structure. They can decide for themselves, oh, we would like to take this action here. And one of the most amazing things about it is that they ever pull off the eight bombings in 19, at the same time in 1919. I'm not sure how they did that, because they weren't very good at that sort of thing. One group would say, you know, we're really pissed off at the American woolen mills, and then they put together a bomb, and they put it out at the woolen mills. So the group decides, those social circles decide, we are going to take an action based on the principles we're learning, or we're not going to take an action. I have never been able, believe me, if I could, I would love this, I've never been able to implicate Bartolomeo Vanzetti and his circle, which is a tiny little circle that operates in Plymouth, and on Cherry Street in Plymouth, in case anyone is interested. They never, but I can tell, they never did anything except involve themselves in that 1916 strike. Whereas this group up here, this larger cell that operates out of Roxbury, largely, they take actions. And they are connected. I'm not trying to say every group isn't connected to another group. There's a, Carlo Valdinocci almost gets himself arrested in 19, oh, 1918, shipping dynamite from Connecticut, because he actually gets his lover Ella, Ella down there to actually ship it, which is really smart. She gets arrested and ends up in federal <laughs> prison, where she meets Emma Goldman, which is kind of cool. Um, and they're shipping it to Milwaukee so there can be a strike against Milwaukee in revenge for the 1917 Milwaukee group having been convicted of the police bombing. So they're connected, but it's autonomous action. You decide what to do. I don't think that it's a cell structure in the same way that, a revolutionary move, that other revolutionary moments, movements gradually develop, kind of an IRA cell structure, say. I don't think it operates that way because they're actually quite open about it. 
you can, I, you know, you can look in the files and see, the, I mean, if you read to tell you, look at the chronica, they're telling you there's a meeting in this hall in, you know, if you want to come join the social circle, the study circle, it's in this hall on Sunday. It's not like it's a hidden cell structure. It's the autonomous action of small-scale communities. That's what I mean, is it's the heart of anarchism. You're trying to build small-scale communities rather than these large social structures that they see as exploitative. Yeah? Would you mind if I asked you for a movie review? <laughs> a few weeks ago, my wife and I watched the Peter Miller 2006 film on Sakhalin Vinzetti uh, with Tony Shalbub and, and so on. Uh, how accurate or? I don't know it. No. Okay. I, I'm sure it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's got some good interviews. <laughs> oh, that film. Yes. Yeah. No, I think it's a very fine job, actually. I'm sorry. I was thinking of something else entirely. No, it's a very fine film. Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was thinking of a movie that never actually made it out of the uh, shooting circle. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's a very fine film. Is yeah. it fairly accurate? Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for your, for your talk and for... Uh, Engaging us with your storytelling is really powerful. Um, I have so many questions, but I'll just pick one. Um, I wanted to ask you about your your definition of um, of terrorism. I know. I struggled with this one. Well, I mean, I'm what what I was thinking of was um, this this historian of modern India, Bipin Chandra. He used to call the the groups that were operating in a somewhat similar fashion at the around the same time against the colonial government, right, shooting judges and yeah. other jerks. Um, he used to call them revolutionary terrorists in his histories. And um, in, order to, in order to give a certain credibility to their political motives, but also to describe the kinds of actions they were engaged in. It's interesting. Um, because those figures have become, um, well, in Indian nationalist history, they're as famous as Gandhi and others, Bhagat Singh and Chandrasekhar Azad. And, you know, people respect Gandhi and they respect these people at the same time. So, um, you know, he used to call them revolutionary terrorists, and then he came out a few years ago saying that um, he wants to take the revolutionary off because he wants terrorists to describe something kind of remove the politics from it and the intention from it and just hmm. a particular kind of action. Um, and then he was, there's a sort of debate going on about that. Yeah. And, um, and I'm, so, so that, that's a kind of theoretical question. Um, and I was also wondering how um, <coughs> the relative success of the movement shapes how we look at it. Oh, so, definitely. So yeah. if I was looking at these people, these Bhagat Singh and these people, you know, right now there's movies being made about them. Right. You know, and, and romanticizing a lot, but in the mainstream Bollywood, right? There's, there's huge movies and TV serials and everything about these folks. Um, but obviously not of. Yeah. Well, these people are so marginal, both in terms of their, I mean, they were from the start. You know, the, and they, they say that themselves. They'll say, some of them who you know, kind of live beyond these moments will say that, you know, we were never American. They didn't want to be Americans. They identified themselves as Italians, and most of their kind of sense of politics actually was Italian. They looked the, back to the country that they drove, were either driven out of or fled, or left for economic reasons, because it's a whole mix of motives. Um, so this in the American, and, and you can't really look at even the great 
agitation over Sacco and Vanzetti and say that there was something kind of lasting in that politics of an anarchist sort. I mean, you can say all sorts of interesting and important kind of political perspectives came out of that, but it wasn't the anarchists who came out of that agitation. By the time that Sacco and Vanzetti are executed, the movement's dead in the United States and dead in, the, and dead in Italy. I mean, some of these figures up here are arrested you know, by the fascists. They are kept in um, isolation by fascists. A couple of them, some of them become fascists. So the movement is dead. Um, so I think that's the kind of marginalization question. And I, you know, I agree with you. I've really struggled with terrorists. I think is important um, for the reason I was saying a, a couple minutes ago because it really reinforces the extraordinary violence of this <coughs> and the bloody-mindedness of this. I mean, those 38 people who are blown up in Wall Street, you're not, I mean, it's not J.P. Morgan who went up, who was, you know, the poor guy who was, you know, wandering down the street when the bomb went off. Um, but maybe I like the idea of the kind of revolutionary terrorist phrase because then at least you also do get that there is a political content here as much as I find it repugnant, that there is a political, it's not kind of violence for violence sake. So I'll have to, I, I've struggled with that one. Yeah. That's right. And the question that I have is, how does this relate either to the nature and the ideology of anarchism or to the minimalist structure that is necessary to carry out any kind of political movement? Mm. These are two totally different phenomena, but mm -hmm. they appear to you know, be confused here. And your mention of Mussolini is particularly interesting, where you have an individual who sort of began with anarchism and winds up as the father of the theory of the totalitarian state. Yeah. How did all these pieces fit together? And I'm also interested in the relationship between sort of family and family tradition and political ideology, because you know, Mussolini's father, Alessandro, was a socialist, and the socialists of Italy were very, very moderate, sort of mushy, mm -hmm. touchy, feely types. Mm -hmm. There wasn't any conflictual characteristic of Italian socialism prior to the 20th century. How do all these pieces fit together? How do you differentiate between organizational structure and ideology? It's a, that, well, I don't know if you have to, I think the harder piece of your question is to connect the personal and the ideological and the organizational structure. I think ideologically, I think that this makes sense, that the end result of a, their vision of an anarchist revolution would be the creation of autonomous, small-scale communities of mutual support. And that's what they're building. So I think institutionally and ideologically, this structure makes perfect sense. Al-Qaeda has the same structure, though. Well, I think that... <laughs> yeah, well, that, that was the follow-up comment or question. <laughs> That's a different fight. I think the trickier part is the personal connections. And that's where I think there are multiple avenues. Multiple avenues? Avenues into a political movement. I don't think there's a single kind of model that I'm trying to draw here. In fact, I'm trying to do exactly the opposite. Okay, but it's not a political movement, is it? I mean, by definition, anarchism is not a political movement. It's an anti-political movement. Fair enough. I'll call it that. Well, but let me just quickly, I'll kind of, what I mean is that Bartolomeo Vanzetti's track into this movement 
is undoubtedly different than other people's political tracks into that movement. That the connection isn't, you can't say there's one mechanism that's going to pull someone into this movement. That's why the personal matters. That's why I like the microhistory angle so much because what it does is it says that the individual experience matters. That I'm not trying to build a sociological vision of this, I'm trying to build an individual vision. So I think they come in various tracks. I don't know for sure what made Carlo Valdonocci move into this movement because I don't have the, this is why I'm doing Bartolomeo Vanzetti because he left the records I can work with. But it's undoubtedly a different personal pathway than Vanzetti does. But once you build a network that is built on your cousin, on the person you live with, on the person you've decided is, in fact, your family, then what happens, and this is where I do think the Al-Qaeda example is a really good one, that what, and this is going to be my complete knowledge of Al-Qaeda right here, because once I'm done, man, the next two minutes, it's all over, that what happens is that those personal connections then become the driving force of the movement from idea to action. That what Carlo Valdonocci is doing, in part, I suspect, and I know what Vanzetti is doing, is you're driven to action by the personal responsibilities you feel to the other members of this organization. And so it becomes, you know, there's lots of people with crazy ideas. They just don't, thank God, act on them. I'm not saying these are crazy ideas, but you know what I mean? That extremist ideas are one thing, action is another. And the action is driven by those personal connections. So I think these connections do matter in terms of operational anti-politics, but, but the pathways can come from a whole million sort of ways. I can tell you one tiny little bit about Carlo Valdonocci. If you'll notice that list of outrages, it's all World War I. Valdonocci at this point, his family back in Italy is writing to him, telling him about the horrors their family are experiencing out on the front. He has a sister whose, whose husband is out on the front. She's having false pregnancies at home. She's losing, I mean, she thinks she's losing children she's not actually having because of the kind of great, enormous emotional strain of having your, your husband out on the front. And he's getting those letters from home. And she's writing to him saying, for God's sake, come home. But of course he's not going to come home because once he goes home, he has to go into the army. So that's about as much as I know. I have thousands, hundreds and hundreds of letters from, from Vanzetti, which is why I'm drawn to him. I have one from Valdonocci that happens to be in his Italian police file. But, you know, so there's a, there are personal dynamics that run through this, but they're reinforcing towards action. I don't know. That's a really great question. I don't know. That's a really, really good question. My answer is I have no clue. I'm going to think about that. That's why I'm here. <laughs> uh, well, it sounds to me like Vanzetti got stuck in the cult, which is there's a, there's a whole literature about the psychology of cults. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that, but go ahead. <laughs> well, they are radicalized. They're a small group. Yes. They, they have their own ideological bubble that's separate from the mainstream. Mm -hmm. They socialize members into that ideology. Mm -hmm. That's a cult. So that's what it looks like to me. Uh, secondly, about the the uh, the, uh, the question about terrorism, there's pretty much an agreement these days in the literature that what terrorists do is select symbolic victims. Mm -hmm. Usually civilians, not always, but they select they select symbolic victims to make a greater point. They're a message bearer. And a lot of what the anarchists did was more akin to guerrilla war. They were killing leaders. But occasionally, mm -hmm. 
they were killing civilians. And so they've been noted as, well, they are terrorists. But um, they weren't pure terrorists. No. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to get too tangled up. The, the, the point's well taken. Um, so if you look at that list of outreaches, those are really symbolic. I mean, the preparedness parade doesn't kill any political leader. The, the, well, um, the example you used is terrorism. Right. The 1919 bombing does. That's clearly aimed at political figures. The killing of czars and all Right. That no, right. That right. And of course, you know, this is the, the Patterson group is the group that produces Gaetano Bresci, who kills the King of Italy in 1900. So they do that sort of thing if they get the opportunity. Though there is also a kind of symbolic value. I'll tell you why I'm a little, why I'm uncomfortable with kind of the cult idea. A lot of what you're describing is right. I agree with that. But there are a couple of things I kind of, um, that make me pause. One is that term you used um, is sucked in. I think he makes a very conscious decision. This is a politics that helps to explain for him his sense of the world. So I don't think that there's, you know, and they weren't, you know, they were actually very suspicious of him because he had actually he, he had a great passion for books and ideas and he wanted to learn English. So he spent a lot of time going to night classes learning to learn English. And a lot of those were held in churches. And so the, the, in fact, the Gallianisti didn't actually, for a while, they weren't sure they wanted to accept him because they were very suspicious of someone who would, would go and sit in a church at night and learn English. Um, Vanzetti, yeah, I'm sorry. And, um, and he could have left any time. Lots of people drifted out of this movement. People would come and go all the time. Um, there were kind of a hardcore group, which is what some of these people are, but there were other hangers on. I mean, Galliani was great at using people. So he had a tendency, he loved to try to find people who had, oh, I don't know, printing presses. Um, people who had training in how to print things. He loved finding them and he'd use them as long as he possibly could and then they'd say, wait a minute, why am I printing your newspaper for free? And they'd have a falling out. So people drifted in and out of this movement a lot. There were the hardcore true believers and then there were a lot of people on the edges well, there's of the movement. Well, self-selection in politics, right? And they are looking for thicker skin. You know, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a key, I think. I really believe oh, that's a key. Not me. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> but fictive kin takes on, not with everyone, but fictive kin takes on a real meaning in an immigrant society, in immigrant communities. Because, especially for someone like Vanzetti, who literally leaves his family behind. I mean, he has cousins. He has cousins in the States. And he does meet them. He sees them. He doesn't cut himself off from them. But he's left his immediate family behind. And so what he's done, and this happens with immigrant community people, immigrants all the time, is they will then go and build an entire family structure of their choosing. And so it takes on a real, this isn't just like, you know, that friend you had from college and then you make your kids call him Uncle Bobby. They say, that's not what this is. When you, when you, and I, maybe I'm projecting on this, but you know, the, the fictive kin in an, for an immigrant family is your kin. Especially at a time where, and Vanzetti is very, he, they keep pleading with him to come home and he won't do it. He won't go home. I mean, Italians went back and forth all the time. He won't do it. Um, Part, and certainly with the war, he can't do it because he's going to get drafted. Well, I think my only point was that you maybe look into the literature on the psychology of cults. Yeah. Many of the no, that's a great thing. sucked into those cults, they're runaways. Yeah. They don't want to go home. They're desperately looking for a, a yeah. home. No, I do agree that there's dynamics similar. I just I don't know, I think I want to make the comparison completely. So I agree with that.
No, please. So in terms of constructive feedback, two yeah. sort of, not red flags exactly. <laughs> or black. But the things that went up. Um, for, so one is on this question of, of terrorism and violence. I think, I think in your talk you emphasized, you used terrorism in order to talk about the sort of cost of these actions. Yeah, that's right. But through your talk, actually, you showed the tremendous violence of the state. Absolutely. You know, the yes. Absolutely. You know, I mean, what is the execution of Saffron Zanzibi except a symbolic, like, yeah. we can crush you if we want to? No, I agree with you completely and, and so what I'm saying on that. Is like, yeah. I think that there's probably a way to be able to talk about the violence of these acts, oh, yeah. but also in relationship to the other violence that's at the center of yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great point, and I want to, just to make clear that what I gave you guys today is a portion of the argument, because like I said at the very start, my kind of vision of these three pieces fitting together, I left out the structure side. Mm -hmm. That's a huge part of this story, but we'd be here till midnight. Um, if I, so yeah, so thank you, but I agree with you completely on that. It'll come Sorry. back. 3 a.m. You're lost. Yeah. <laughs> Text me. I tried so hard to tease. Thank you. Um, uh. This is another anarchist circle, which is how Nick Sacco gets into the story. One of the things we don't, people often, um, if they know anything about Sacco and Vincetti at all, and you guys are probably the wrong audience because you probably do, most Americans have no clue who they are. They're pretty sure when I've talked to them that they were selling atomic secrets. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Nick Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti barely knew each other. We combined them together, you know, they're like one person. They weren't. They're from very different circles, which is right up here. So Nick Sacco came to the United States around the same time as Vanzetti did. He comes from southern Italy, so he comes from a different part of Italy. And he went immediately, came with his brother, and he went immediately to the town outside of Boston, Milford, Massachusetts. And he got a training as a shoemaker and worked in his craft the rest of his time in the United States until they arrested him, except for the very brief period when he goes under Carlo Valdonocci's direction with Bartolomeo Vanzetti in 1917 to Mexico to avoid the draft. That's how they know each other. They're in a part of a group that Carlo Valdonocci leads across the country with the FBI, not the FBI because they weren't in existence, but with federal authorities chasing after him as he makes his way across the border. And they stay in Mexico about six months, can't stand it, and then all they all come back. So that's their only real connection, except the fact that they happened to be together the night they were arrested. His group, it turns out, is in the Milford area, so in western, kind of what is now the western suburbs, but were then outlying towns in Massachusetts, and they all come from the exact same part of Italy themselves. So it's exactly the same dynamic, except that it's a southern Italian group, all clustered around a set of towns that Sacco is from. He comes in, and he slips right into that group. Now, I don't think that he was an anarchist before he got here, but I'm not absolutely sure of that. His family was politically active. He has a brother um, who goes, the brother who comes with, who goes back to Italy and becomes a communist. Um, and, and Sacco, quite honestly, while we're talking about ideology, he's not quite sure what he believes in. You know, he believes in revolutionary movements. What exactly that means, he's not quite sure. And that's another part of it. Vanzetti is a classic working class intellectual. Self-trained, deeply read, 
but narrowly read. Classic, classic working class intellectual. Nick Sacco, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, is a guy who loves to work on machines. Can't, doesn't like books, doesn't, you know, he just wants to do stuff. But his group then is a completely different group based on geography as well. I haven't worked it out as thoroughly because I'm writing about Vanzetti. Um, and then they connect in these kind of intricate, kind of tenuous ways to the Boston groups. They know each other and there are connections between them, but it's based in exactly the same dynamic but out in a different set of towns. So that's why I put them up here. So thank you. I appreciate that. Right. But your argument basically is that the interpersonal network is really the root of this activism. That's right. And that some of them are not even sure what the ideology is that mm -hmm. they're supposed to be pursuing, and some mm -hmm. of them are. That's right. And it varies enormously. Exactly. And so the point, really, in some sense, is that there's a collective process of sorts. That's right. It's whether it's political or not political, it's a social process. Of That's sorts. right. And that sometimes there's ideology, and it helps target certain things they do. They go out and act. That's right. It is there. It's important. I don't want to. It's not always articulated or endorsed in any way that you could call uniform, so to speak. That's right. Yep. Part of it preys on all of the will, the right. absence of anything else to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, there's a and, and there are other factors that I haven't really touched on. These are really, Galliani's not, but these are really young people. And that's yeah. a piece of it. There are some, you know, when Valdenocci comes to the United States, he's, what is he, 16? Something like that? Maybe that's not quite, I could do that, but it doesn't matter. You know, so they're very young. They. So there's all sorts of layers of kind of experience. And this is where doing the kind of work I'm talking about, this really personal kind of look, it gets really messy. Because you do have someone like Nick Sacco who, he's put on the, one of the great disasters of the Sacco and Vanzetti trial, which is where the power of the state comes in, really most vividly until we get to the end, um, is the lawyers put Nick Sacco on the stand. He can barely speak English. But you've got to put him on the stand because if he takes the fifth, that the jury's going to see that as a declaration of guilt. So they put him on the stand, and he tries desperately to do what a good Italian anarchist does when you're on the stand. You make a proclamation. And you read the thing, and we have word-for-word -word transcriptions of it, and you have no idea what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> and it's not just the English, though that is part of it. It's this great conglomeration of frustration and resentment, and he's unhappy that his son, who he loves dearly, is never going to get a chance to go to Harvard. I mean, he literally says this. He says, you know, Harvard is this beautiful place, this beautiful school. Dante can't, his son is Dante, he's eight years old. Dante will never go there. That's piece of that resentment. Vanzetti is a much more sophisticated person. So when he gets on the stand, he knows how to play it. You know, he's not, he's kind of playing back and forth with the prosecutor. 
So it's a very complicated thing that combines. I'm, trying to, I'm not trying to eliminate ideology. They are true believers. The second to last thing that Sacco says when he's executed, he's taken into the chamber, it's the electric chair. He goes into the chamber, he says, long live anarchy. The last thing he says is, mama. And I think that, and so, you know, in my mind, is that's the combination. It's all of those things blending together. That's what's cool about it. Though it's unscientific. I am not a scientific historian. You know, I think I have proved that. <laughs> I'm very interested in this connection between the interpersonal and the, and the social or forest. That's what, what we do too. And um, I'm interested in where the, where the movement, in fact, is driven by the interpersonal rather than the mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When 1992 happened and Italians were getting certain pieces of the pie and decisions about statues of Christopher Columbus and things like that, they suddenly became very politicized. And these, and, and, That's and a good, 1992 yeah. I like that. mobilized those kinds of numbers. So they were almost a free period. I mean, they, they I like that. Right. That's really helpful. And then also they they were instrumental in um, getting the Greeks to do a lot of their dirty work for them for a while. Particularly uh, the Greeks were doing this kind of thing for them. So that there were moments when they did it. This wasn't the only critical moment. Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah, that's really incredibly helpful because I, you could argue, and I'll have to think this all through because obviously I haven't yet, that the war, for, the, for this group, it's the war that turns it from you know, literally a study circle right. into, a act, into that kind of direct action that then is fed by, and, that's, and the timing is actually almost perfect. Now, part of the problem is that the Valdonocci brothers, are, they're not even here, till, the first one's not here until 1912. So it wasn't like a lot of time in between there anyways. But I, I'm going to think a lot about that. That's really helpful. Thank you. The other thing that, that I think is probably true for these Italians also is that it's, you use the word interpersonal as well as you use the word personal. And I think interpersonal and social networks yeah. is, for, is far more accurate. Um, here in Columbus, one of the things that's not happening, even among young people, is a lot of individual decision making. So it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's yeah. Um, yeah. Decisions of all kinds are in what job you should have, how you're going to fit in, and how the family is going to continue. Well, and in some ways, that's the remarkable thing, in, and I won't go into all this because I can. Um, that's what's remarkable about Vanzetti is that the, there's an explicit rejection of that. But then instead, you have the other way. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. You're absolutely right. It's that first part of the story is really quite remarkable for an Italian. He's the oldest son. Is it, um, so he's, the land's his, and he leaves his family right after his mother dies. And like I said, really the economy of the family, which I now know thanks to actually Mershon money, is that it's from that shop where the mother works. 
So the mother dies. They need him home. It's the moment they need him home. And he says, I'm out of here. And then he borrows the money from his father to go. Um, and that's, a really, that's what I meant by there's a startling cruelty, really, in that, that he's rejecting the family at exactly the moment they, lead, they need him most. But then he creates his own, his own alternative version of that. Um, and yeah, that's really, that's great. Thank you. This is really interesting. Um, it, it's sort of like before the Big Bang. Before you <laughs> so to speak, right. There should be authority structures that govern the interactions among individuals. What kind of primitive structures emerge? And what strikes me is that there's a fundamental difference here between this interpersonal map and what you would find if you were to say drop in on an Occupy movement or mm, I suspect, Square, yeah. or where I'm from, Berkeley in the right. 60s. Yeah, I suspect so that's you have true. A totally different dynamic that right. Gustave Le Bon yeah. nicely described, where you know charisma and, and mm -hmm. the ability to persuade the crowd to take a dramatic stand mm -hmm. is the determinant of, of leadership. Um, here you have a totally different kind of map in which there are interpersonal relations and family relations and geographically rooted family relations. If you were to look at the political anthropology literature, you'd also find, say, clan structures and things of this I, kind. Yeah. And you know, they all have in common what is the sort of primeval structure of political relationships That's right. when you deny the legitimacy of authority. That's right. Yes. In some ways, like I, I guess I have two comments. You guys are like the most enduring group of people I've ever met in my life. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna forget one of them. Watch this. Um, this is a way imperfect map. There are probably all sorts of personal relations up here I cannot get because I'm working from a certain set of documents that have allowed me to get this far. And you know I'm gonna be completely frank because it's late and I'm gonna get punchy. Uh, I'm really proud of this damn map because this is a lot of work to get this sucker up here. But I'm probably missing huge portions of it. Because really what I've done is I've constructed this out of police files, out of immigration records, and of census records, and what, what fragments I pick up in all sorts of other you know, letters and that sort of thing. So there probably is some sort of clan structure you could probably put over this that I will never ever get. And I'm probably got, you know, what I've got here is right. But is it complete? It is not even complete. I do think um, that one of the things that fascinates me about the anarchist movement at this level, and this may not be true of other movements, you know, I'm not claiming this is a model of anything, except the anarchists, these, these anarchists no less, is that it is in many ways a pre-modern vision of society that is very, very, ex well, there's two parts of it, because you reminded me of one other, that is in complete rejection of the church, and deeply, profoundly influenced by it. Vanzetti is in many ways, a, and he grew up a very, very staunch Catholic. I know what um, confraternity he belonged to. I know what that confraternity did in their town. I've been in, the, not in, I've been to the chapel that they belonged to. And it's not coincidental that this is about martyrdom. Um, and that's what it is. He knows he's dying. He knows from 1921 on. There are times where he denies it. He knows he's going to get executed. That's what he's there to freaking do. It's his propaganda of the deed. <laughs> um, 
But they are very explicitly modern people. They believe this is science. And they talk about this all the time. This is the scientific, you know, it's that kind of, it's not Marxist, but it's that same kind of vision of 19th century kind of social development on a scientific basis. So they are very, very modern people in their minds. And they hate religion because it is kind of this ancient medieval world that we're rejecting. They just happen to live in it. They just, though they've rejected it. So there's, there's kind of that, I don't know, this is going to be a 10,000 page book. I think it'll be great. <laughs> Why don't we yes. do a great applause? <laughs> Thank you. This has been really, really helpful. Thank you. Oh, I didn't show you that. There's an article by a guy named Max Abram.